Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant paint and trolls. Looking at the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Last week, the long-awaited appeals court ruling in the uh, never-ending Oracle versus Google case came down from the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, overturning the jury verdict in the district court concerning whether or not Google's use of a portion of Java's APIs were fair use. Uh, The details and results of this case are important, but also complex, confusing, and detailed. Uh, So for this intro, I'm going to try uh, to go through some of the history of this case uh, up until uh, this point um, before bringing in our guest to discuss the specifics and consequences of this particular ruling. Um, If you uh, want a preview of where that discussion I think is going to go, I will just say that it was not a good decision and there's not much good to say about it. Uh, but as for the history of how we got here, uh, Oracle bought Sun Microsystems back in 2009 and with it, the rights or whatever rights that Sun held at the time to Java, the famed programming language. Uh, the next year in 2010, Oracle sued Google for both copyright and patent infringement concerning Android allegedly copying uh, aspects of Java. Uh, The court separated out the patent and copyright claims, first throwing out most of the patent claims, and the jury found that Google didn't infringe on what little patent claims remained. On the copyright side, the question was about Google's use of parts of Java's API. And the jury initially found infringement, but the judge, William Alsop, Uh, correctly ruled, in my opinion at least, correctly ruled that APIs are actually not subject to copyright because under Section 102B of the Copyright Act, there's no copyright uh, protection for ideas, procedures, processes, systems, methods of operations, uh, concepts, principles, or discoveries. And APIs generally fall into categories like processes, systems, and methods of operation. Uh, because there had been a patent component in the case, uh, even though that was no longer a part of the case, uh, rather than go up to the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court, where it would normally go, uh, this case went to the Federal Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, which is the court that somewhat ridiculously hears all patent appeals. Uh, we've talked on this podcast and on Tech Dirt many, many, many times before about the silliness of the Federal Circuit and why it was created, and why it has uh, since created a huge mess for patent law, uh, it seems now determined to also create a huge mess for copyright law. Uh, So uh, the Federal Circuit uh, more or less ignored Judge Alsop's long and detailed explanation for why APIs are not uh, the same as software, and basically said, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but to our untrained eyes, an API looks like software and thus can be covered by copyright. Uh, It then sent the case back to Alsop's court, specifically saying that a new trial was needed on the question of fair use and pointing out that a reasonable jury could find Google's 
used to be fair and thus not infringing. So a few more years go by, another trial, which was a very odd trial to follow because everyone had to pretend that APIs were copyrightable, even though no one had really considered them that way for years and years. And so that determined a lot of the, the early actions in this case. And then they sort of just tried to squeeze that into a fair use argument, which um, perhaps surprisingly prevailed given the, the oddity of the setup. The jury said it was fair use, uh, and some of us think it never should have gotten to that point, but since it did, that was, I, we believe, the best result. So then the case went back to the very same panel of three judges of the Federal Circuit, leading to finally last week's decision rejecting the jury's decision uh, and insisting that no reasonable jury could find fair use and then doing its own fair use four-factor test and declaring it obviously infringing, sending it back once again to the lower court for a third trial on damages. Okay, so uh, there's a lot to pick apart in, in the ruling, and uh, to go through it, we've got... Uh, We've got quite an expert on, on the line this time. <laughs> One of the uh, foremost experts in the field, I would say, is Pam Samuelson, the uh, famed law professor at UC Berkeley and co-director of Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Um, so since there's a, a lot to dig into here, um, first, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, and so let's start with the fact that the Federal Circuit uh, basically chose to ignore the jury who had, had first demanded weigh in on fair use and whether or not that is an odd thing for it to have done. So I don't think there's another case ever been decided where <laughs> a jury ruled that something was fair use and an appellate court overturned it. Um, so that this case is unique in that particular uh, respect. Um, and what's odd about it was that after a full trial, uh, on the first uh, go-round uh, in which fair use was raised as a defense and the jury split 11 to 1 in favor of it, but it wasn't unanimous. So one of the reasons why the when the appellate court first reviewed this, it said that there was a triable issue of fact, uh, and the fact that 11 of the jurors would have ruled fair use at the first trial uh, should have been enough to say there had there had to be a triable issue of fact uh, there. And the Federal Circuit actually said there was a triable issue of fact. Now, when juries review uh, um, testimony and documents and so forth uh, and make a determination, it is the general practice and the right thing to do to defer to the jury's decision and to uh, assume that unless there's no evidence in the record to support the jury's verdict, uh, that the jury's verdict should stand. Um, so uh, something that's really quite strange about this particular uh, decision is the willingness to say at first that there was a triable issue of fact and now saying, oh, well, <laughs> Oops, um, uh, I'm going to take it away from it because I don't agree with uh, what the jury did. Yeah, and and we did a post that um, uh, looked at, you know, compared sort of the two rulings, the original one that sent it back and said, um, you know, that a jury has to do this, and then the latest one, and basically, again, and it's the exact same three judges on the panel, um, they they basically disagree with each other, you know. I mean, it it seems kind of clear that they had decided that that Google must be guilty, and therefore they were going to manufacture whatever, uh, you know, whatever answer would would lead to that 
uh, result, um, and, and which seems odd. Oh yes, it's a <laughs> it's a very odd ruling. Um, uh, I will say that uh, I think this um, this decision was very carefully crafted by uh, the judge who wrote it. Um, mm-hmm trying to find Ninth Circuit precedents wherever possible um, to bolster the argument that um, that overturning the jury verdict was a sound thing to do. Um, so uh, while we'll wait and see whether or not there is an effort to get uh, en banc review by the whole federal circuit or mm-hmm. another petition to the Supreme Court um, uh, at the moment, uh, I think everybody is just trying to figure out what to uh, what to think about this particular uh, this particular ruling. Yeah, and and just one example of sort of and and you know there are a whole bunch of examples of sort of weird statements that sort of contradicted you know the the earlier ruling. But the one that struck me the most was um, and, and I, I don't know how how which what parts you remember, but the um, the. The, you know, it went through the four-factor analysis, and and the second factor, which is um, the nature of the work, and this is actually, uh, I, I think this was the one. Sorry, I might actually be getting confused. I think it was factor two, where they said, um, you know, in the original one, they they went through this whole spiel about how reasonable jurors might find that it's fair use, and then in the in the, the last week's ruling there, they just said um, no reasonable juror could have possibly found this, and so it's it, it, it's mind-boggling to me. I don't know. I don't know if you if 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 you know on appeal whether on banc or or to the Supreme Court they can just point out that like the 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 panel seems to contradict itself. Well, uh, I believe that what they say is that there was uh, insufficient uh, evidence on the record at the last trial for them to have been able to make a a ruling Mm. as a matter of law. And so the record is more complete, um, they said. Um, I don't know that that's true, but um, certainly that's their uh, that's their argument for saying that um, uh, that they were. entitled to review de novo. And so part of what's going on here is the question about what what is the proper thing for juries? What is the proper role of juries in cases like this? And juries, uh, the reason we have juries is because people disagree about what the facts are. And if I say the facts are A and you say the facts are B, they can't be both. Um, So the jury basically listens to the evidence, uh, looks at whatever documents there are, and then uh, makes a decision about whether A or B is true. Uh, So something that the Federal Circuit does in this opinion, which is very important, is it narrows down the number of things that can be considered to be factual questions uh, to a point where most of the things that they identify as fact questions uh, are ones about which there is no dispute, um, and only a small number of issues are then left as quote-unquote facts that the jury might have found. So to the extent that the jury didn't make specific findings out about specific facts, um, uh, there was uh, an opportunity for the court to say, well, um, the jury may have decided something, but um, 
unless it's about a fact issue, then we as an appellate court can review um, the record as a whole um, uh, in what's called de novo fashion. That is to say, as though we were the decider of fact in the first place or the decider of the case in the first place. And so um, that's one of the things that uh, I would expect that if there is an effort um, to... Uh, to seek further review of this decision, that um, that seems to be one of the places where um, the decision is vulnerable to some challenge because um, there were more fact disputes in the case than whether uh, Google acted in bad faith um, or the jury thought that the there was enough functionality in the API that the second factor would... Uh, way in favor. Um, usually, uh, if there's going to be a trial and the question is, you know, has there been harm uh, mm-hmm. to markets? That's something that juries actually make decisions about all the time. Um, how much weight to give to the commerciality factor, again, is something that I would argue is a fact question, not just a question where, uh, you know, the 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 appellate courts just gets to decide, well, it's overwhelmingly commercial. It's like, well, actually, no, it's not overwhelmingly commercial. Okay, overwhelmingly commercial would be something where you um, you sell the same product um, or a substantially similar product in the same marketplace as the, uh, as the copyright owner, right. and that's not what was happening here. So what weight to give to certain things? Um, the Federal Circuit uh, also said that there was a tribal issue of fact about transformativeness before, right. and now they say, no, um, there's no, there's no tribal issue of fact on that. So I think that there are contradictions, as you point out, um, uh, between what the court said the last time and what um, what the record uh, basically supports. Um, and so uh, it seems to me that filling out what are the other kind of fact issues that are within the jury's purview is something that um, uh, that is really important. Yeah, and there are different discussions, right? So the, the idea is, right, that the, the, the judges – can they they're supposed to handle matters of law whereas the jury is supposed to decide matters of fact right that's sort of the that's the, right. the simplified version of it um but there are sort of i mean there are times when lots of parties in in a lawsuit might you know prefer that the judge can can you know sort of handle the fair use questions without having to go to a jury right uh, right uh, you know so I guess there's a sort of an open question of how do, how do you balance those things, right? So the idea is that fair use being, uh, you know, mixed uh, questions of law and fact, right? So some pieces can be decided by judges, some can be decided by juries, right? Mm-hmm. And so is there is there some reverse concern that, you know, so I, I know that there's concern just because of the, the results of this case that, um, you know, this this does seem like, the judges overstepping their bounds and, and sort of claiming um, the ability to do more than they're supposed to do. Um, but at the same time, I could also see concern going the other way where, um, you know, parties who want judges to rule on, on fair use um, could get concerned that if this went the other way, it would it would force fair use cases to go to a jury more often than, than they otherwise might need to. So I think it's true that um, jury trials on fair use um, are fa- fairly rare. Yeah. Um, 
but that's often because the basic facts of the mm-hmm. in dispute um, the they aren't material to uh, the legal conclusion. So, you know, um, when it comes to something like a parody, um, you know, a parody mm-hmm. is a kind of critical commentary. And, you know, the person um, who made the use uh, may be claiming I only did as much as, as I needed to. And the person who um, um, is challenging the use can say, you know, you took too much. Right. And that's actually a place where we all agree that you took this many bars of the music or this many um, this many words from the from the other work. The question is how substantial right. was the taking? And that's actually something where if you're not disputing about the facts, um, that is to say how many words were taken, or in this case how many declarations were taken. Right. Um, then the jury, you know, then the question is, how does the law apply to the facts? Um, but with a lot of the things in the in the in the Oracle v. Google case, um, right, the reason that they had a trial uh, was because there were differences of opinion right. um, about factual matters, um, and the jury resolved those uh, in favor of uh, of Google. And so, the the thing that I'm worried about is this kind of like effort to sort of say that the appellate court gets to say that the only things that the jury can ever say anything about and the only way that we'll ever defer to um, that is if we've said what the facts in dispute were and nothing else can be um, nothing else can be part of the case well if that was so then you don't need a two-week trial right um on the on those issues right right yeah um so so one other thing that i know a lot of people have been concerned about is the the transformative use analysis that the, that the court did here and transformative use is you know certainly over the past couple of decades has been increasingly kind of like the 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 sort of most important piece of of the fair use analysis that, that may not be an entirely fair characterization, but it feels like it at least. The transformative use is, is the big question that, that um, many of, of the fair use cases hinge on for, for whatever reason. Um, even though like that phrase transformative use is not actually in the, the statute at all, but it's become you know, sort of accepted, I think, for generally good reasons as, uh, as, as a key factor in determining fair use. And yet it, it felt like the transformative use analysis here was um, I would say weak, but, but how would you characterize it? So um, the, there is a huge debate um, in the kind of law review literature and the case law and among copyright professionals about what is a valid way to use that term transformative. So mm-hmm. everybody agrees that if you have something like a parody that takes some expression from a work and then um, adds some new expression and changes the meaning of it um, as in a parody, um, that's transformative. There are also lots of situations which I call productive uses where um, somebody takes a portion, some quotes, for example, from a pre-existing work and then does a new work uh, on, uh, on top of that. Um, and one of the arguments that um, 
I would have made in this case is that there is a kind of productive use by uh, by Google of the uh, of the parts of the Java API which they uh, appropriated. Um, but there's also a kind of third way that uh, transformative has been understood, which is for a different purpose or in a different context. Um, and the um, a number of the cases, including some Ninth Circuit cases, say that it's highly transformative to use it for a different purpose or in a different context. And uh, Google was really relying on those decisions. Uh, in addition, there's the Ninth Circuit case, Sony v. Connectix, uh, which involved reverse engineering of, uh, of a program in order to re-implement an API so that programs that were written for the PlayStation platform could be run uh, through the Connectix uh, platform. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit in that case said that it was modestly transformative uh, what um, what Connectix did. And so uh, in the brief that I filed uh, with uh, some other folks um, uh, in this uh, in this case, uh, we pointed to that Ninth Circuit decision saying that kind of re-implementing an API and a new program uh, actually is transformative uh, under Ninth Circuit law. So uh, it was um, a surprise to sort of see that the Federal Circuit came out flat out. Um, this is commercial, it's non-transformative, and the API is being used for the same purpose uh, as in the original. Right. But that's true in the Sony Connectix case, too, right? right. I mean, you, you extracted the interface information to re-implement it, um, and uh, that was said to be transformative by the Ninth Circuit. So there's certainly some inconsistency uh, in the Federal Circuit's interpretation of Ninth Circuit precedent. And, and that gets to a related issue in terms of, you know, the potential impact of this ruling, right? So, you know, a lot of people have brought up the idea that this this could make certain forms of reverse engineering, um, you know, infringement when before it was considered allowed. Is, is that is that part of the concern? Well, um, you know, when you have the the court of appeals saying that um, that the uh, that the use of a uh, of an API um, number one that APIs are copyrightable, and number two that they're commercial, mm -hmm. um, even if you give it away as an open source, and um, three that it's non transformative. Those are uh, those are all things that will um, put reverse engineers at some at some risk um, and if there's a licensing market for the API um, I think the Federal Circuit will say well that's an actual market that um, uh, that you are displacing now again that is inconsistent with the the uh, Sega v. Accolade and Sony v. Connectix decisions by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, the Sega definitely had a, a licensing market for video games to run on its platform, and Accolade chose not to um, enter into a license with that um, uh, with that company, uh, and yet reverse engineered anyway. Right. So the um, one thing that uh, I think is also upsetting about the the 
the Federal Circuit's uh, Oracle decision here is that it reinvokes the the um, the kind of the Sony presumption of harm. Right? If I've already said that it's commercial and non-transformative, then I'm going to presume that there's harm to the market. I don't even have to prove it. Right. Um, and that presumption will be difficult to overcome if there's any kind of licensing market out there. So I would say that while the Federal Circuit decision says that it is not foreclosing fair use defenses uh, in the future, um, um, it's certainly constricting uh, the role of, uh, of fair use. And um, I wouldn't want to bring um, a case before them. And here's the thing that worries me the most about this uh, this decision as well as the previous decision, mm-hmm. which is that, um, that there's going to be a huge incentive for every lawyer – uh, litigating a software copyright case to find some patent out right. there, even buying it up and adding a patent claim to the case in order for the appeal to go to the Federal Circuit. And then the Federal Circuit will keep reinterpreting its interpretation of Ninth Circuit law in a way that will overturn what is real Ninth Circuit law, <laughs> which I've studied for many years. Right, right. And and so for people who don't follow this stuff, I, I, I want to dig in a little bit on, on sort of how this all works. And I, I mentioned in the intro, and you just described it a little bit, but basically in 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 uh, well, I want to say normal court <laughs> process. You know, you have you have uh, cases filed in the district court, and it flows up through regional circuit appeals courts, right? And most of the West Coast is in the Ninth Circuit, and you know, New York is in the Second Circuit, and whatever. So there's all the different circuits, and so you get sort of um, bodies of law in within those those regional areas and if there's conflict between the circuits that's one of the reasons why you would go to the supreme court to sort of settle settle those differences but we have this one weird circuit court which is the federal circuit which doesn't you know have a number associated with it and that was created um mainly for a few reasons but mainly to to handle all patent appeals and again there's all sorts of weird reasons why that came about, um, most of which I don't think ever made sense and, and definitely definitely don't make sense today, but it exists. So, so patent cases all flow up through that one particular court rather than the circuit courts. And so there's a weird situation here where even though the patent stuff was, was gone from this case, um, this case still flowed through to the, to the federal circuit, though they're supposed to be applying Ninth Circuit law, right? Yes. And so you have this weird thing now where if you were to file a similar case without a patent claim, it would go up through the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But if you were to add a patent claim, which is what you were just describing, then it would go to the Federal Circuit. And so if you want to win one of these cases, um, you're probably more likely to just find some sort of patent claim to throw in, even if you know it's completely ridiculous, just to get it into the more favorable um, appeals court, right? Yes. Um, and that feels wrong for, for a whole variety of reasons, including just, you know, basic jurisdiction shopping um, and, you know, anything that encourages, you know, deliberately throwing in bogus claims um, should seem problematic <laughs> uh, just in, in general. Um, and, I mean, is there is there any effort to, I mean... In, in my ideal world, we would just get rid of the federal circuit altogether. I don't think it serves any useful purpose. Um, but is there any effort to, to, to fix things such that non-patent cases don't go up through the federal circuit that you know of? I, 
I, I don't know of any effort uh, at the moment to do that. Uh, I do think that this is uh, a worrisome enough uh, development that I think there will be conversations. I've started a conversation with someone who, uh, who thinks that there is uh, some plausibility to uh, amending the federal circuit's jurisdiction. Now, I think it gets complicated, right, if there are both patent and copyright claims that uh, are decided at a trial court level to say the patent claims go to the federal circuit mm-hmm. and the copyright claims go to the Ninth Circuit, um, you know, is making you litigate the case twice in uh, in appellate court. So um, uh, I think it was not um, much in contemplation that that would happen because <laughs> usually there are either patents over here for technologies or copyrights over here for expressive works, and it's only with respect to software um, that there might be some both co- copyright and patent issues in the uh, on the same uh, intellectual property, um, and that was really not in contemplation at the time that they. Uh, they created, the Congress created the, the federal circuit. So they weren't really thinking, oh, let's make the software cases go to the, right. uh, go to the federal circuit. Um, it was just not in contemplation at the time. Uh, but um, now um, I think uh, you could um, change the jurisdiction so that if the patent claims fall out of the case and there's no appeal on the patent claim, uh, then any copyright or other federal claim should go to the regional circuits. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, it does feel like, um, you know, the federal circuit for many years, I, I think, and I've written extensively about this, um, has um, messed up patent law. <laughs> it, has, it, it made a whole series of decisions um, uh, over and over again that, that really expanded uh, patent law and created the sort of massive patent thickets and, and patent fights that we see today. Um, it had some fairly unique interpretations of patent law, I would say. Um, and um, and so it feels like almost a continuation of that. I don't know if it's just like that particular court just um, – for whatever reason, doesn't understand either copyright or patents, or or if there's something larger here, um, but it 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 does feel weird that that it's that one court that that seems so bad at this. <laughs> well, the fact that the Supreme Court has taken a large number of Federal Circuit cases in recent years. And in the overwhelming majority of them has reversed. Yeah. Um, the federal circuit is some sign that um, uh, that the federal circuit's um, jurisprudence is not binding um, favor uh, with the highest court uh, in the land, and they've done that on a on a number of different types of issues. Yeah. Um, uh, most notably related to software uh, about uh, patent subject matter. What kinds of software innovations are capable of being patented? Federal Circuit just opened the door to everything. Yeah. And the, um, the Supreme Court um, struck back by saying, no, there are some types of software innovations that are too abstract to be uh, patentable, and it's important for those uh, abstract concepts to be available to uh, to other programmers. Um, so when I looked at 
the Federal Circuit's decision in the first uh, ruling on copyrightability um, in the Oracle case, I thought to myself, you know, Judge O'Malley, who wrote that opinion, um, was one of the judges who would have upheld all of Alice's claims as patent subject matter. And I have this intuition that part of the reason why she was so intent on saying that the um, that the Java API um, was uh, copyright protectable is that she didn't want sort of the patents to go out the window because of the Alice decision um, and then copyright get gutted. So there are, you know, signs in uh, both opinions that, you know, you got to watch out because you can't uh, let software get unprotected. Right. Um, uh, so uh, one of the arguments that uh, that Google made um, in the first case was that APIs are patentable, and there have been patents that even Sun and Oracle have gotten on APIs. So that suggests that they should be protected by patent law, not by copyright law. And the Federal Circuit's decision said just because something is patentable doesn't mean it's not also copyrightable. Um, uh, that actually is a, uh, an assertion which I think is flawed. Um, uh, although there's overlap between design patents, uh, which is for ornamental designs for articles of manufacture, and pictorial works that might be protected by copyright law, um, utility patent law and copyright law have been mutually exclusive uh, and understood to be mutually exclusive for well over 100 years. Yeah. Um yeah, it does. It does feel strange, and and I mean, it, you raise the fact that the Supreme Court, you know, really in I guess basically the last decade, a little more than that, um, has taken on a whole bunch of Federal Circuit cases and almost always um, overturned them, and and sometimes uh, <laughs> very directly and occasionally with uh, um, I would say snarky <laughs> uh, messages back to the Federal Circuit uh, about uh, its interpretation of, of patent law, um, which to me at least raises at least some hope that maybe they would be open to, to reviewing the issue, this particular issue, uh, should, should there be a petition to the Supreme Court. Um, though I'm also just generally nervous the Supreme Court, I, I feel, well, they have been doing good things on patent law for the most part. Um, has not had a a good track record recently on copyright law, um, so I, I do worry how that would turn out. Well, they um, number one, they don't take very many cases. Number two, they take very few copyright cases, um, and uh, number three, they don't really know very much about technology. So yeah. it's hard for them to uh, to review some of these kinds of cases. Um, what's really um, uh, regrettable from my standpoint is that uh, that Justice Stevens back in 1980 uh, no 1994 mm -hmm. uh, recused himself in the uh, uh, in the Lotus v. Borland case because. Um, uh, as you may remember, the legal issue in Lotus v. Borland was pretty much identical to the legal issue in the um, in the Oracle v. Google case, mm -hmm. uh, which is about whether or not uh, a program interface is protectable by copyright law or right. not. So this was like pull-down pull menus, basically, right? Yes. Um, and so they're command structures. Um, both cases involve command structures, and the 
the First Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruled that there was um, uh, that the command structure was an unprotectable method of operation, and the Supreme Court heard oral argument in the case and split four to four. Mm-hmm. Um, Justice Stevens was always one of the kind of most uh, strong kind of um, antitrust competition law um, members of the court, and I'm almost certain that he would have uh, been the fifth vote to uphold the the, the First Circuit's ruling. Um, and if that had happened, then I think the, even the Federal Circuit in uh, the Oracle v. Google case would have found it difficult to say that the the you know that decision wouldn't prevail. Um, but because the Supreme Court split on essentially the same legal issue. Um, back in 1995, um, I think the Federal Circuit thought that, you know, that it was open to their interpretation, again, ignoring Ninth Circuit precedent that said that um, program interfaces are um, unprotectable procedures under um, uh, under Section 102B of the copyright statute. Yeah. And, and so that gets a little bit towards the thing that I... I you know, spent years ranting about, which is sort of the the inability of the court to distinguish an API from from code from you know sort of the larger software product itself, right? Um, mm-hmm. And like that that to me has been the most frustrating because I also felt that in the original uh, ruling by by Judge Alsop, he actually went into great detail, and it seemed fairly obviously targeted at the appeals court to convince them rather than, than anyone else or the parties in, in particular um, about the difference between what an API is versus, um, you know, regular software code. Um, right. But, you know, for people who, who aren't in that space and don't spend much time with it, they can look similar. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's where I think, you know, the, the Federal Circuit just kind of said, well, you know, this looks, it's all, you know, code-like you know, gobbledygook, you know, therefore, um, you know, of course it must be copyrightable in the same way that software itself is copyrightable. Um, and, and so I, I still worry about any, any court looking at that same question without having the knowledge or technical background to understand the difference or sort of what an API really is. Well, that is uh, worrisome. I think that Judge Alsop did um, an exceptional job um, trying to articulate um, uh, what the what the Java API was and what the declarations were um, that were at issue uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, actually, at the trial court level, initially, um, Oracle was claiming. Not that there was literal infringement, but that there was non-literal infringement, right? Co- right. Copying st- structure, uh, not copying code. So the most brilliant thing that uh, that Josh Rosencrantz, who ended up representing Oracle on appeal, did was he made it into a literal infringement case, mm-hmm. right? By saying by saying that those declaring codes um, uh, aren't. Um, uh, aren't non-literal elements in some sense. They mm-hmm. are they are literal, and so copying um, eleven thousand of them um, right. is something that um, that can't be justified. So once you kind of conceptualize this as a as a literal infringement case rather than a non-literal or structural infringement case, um, that changes uh, the way the courts look at it, uh, and so. 
one thing that's uh, that's different um, here is that the um, is that you have um, this conception that the API itself is a work of authorship, right. and so taking things literally copying from the um, from that work um, is something that copyright law should stop. And uh, in general. Um, Literal copying is more likely to be infringement than non-literal copying. Uh, so this switch in conception uh, uh, was important, um, even though the declaring code essentially doesn't end up in the executable code. So the argument that, in fact, it's not, there's not literal infringement here because, uh, because Google wrote its own implementing code. Again, a lot of people um, in the software industry um, distinguish between APIs and thinking that APIs are free to reuse without permission, but you have to do your own implementation. If that distinction between interface and implementation is uh, is respected uh, by the law, as I believe it was until the Oracle decision, um, then reusing somebody's API, either parts of it or the whole thing, uh, would be something that wouldn't give rise to copyright uh, infringement claims. But again, the federal circuit is the federal circuit, and <laughs> I'm just a law professor. So, <laughs> Okay. The, fa the fact that I've been fighting this fight uh, since, uh, since the mid-1980s um, uh, makes me a little frustrated. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we we thought we prevailed there for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does feel like the law has funny ways of coming back around on on lots of these things. Um, so to 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 close out, we mentioned some of this. Um, the two things I'd like to just sort of touch on um, to to finish this up are. Um, well, what happens next? I mean, we mentioned the likelihood of, of asking the federal circuit to review on Bonk, which is with all the justices or judges, um, or going to the Supreme Court, and they could do the on Bonk request first and then go to the Supreme Court if that doesn't work. Um, do you have any sense of where you think this is likely to go? Um, it's hard to, it's hard to predict. Uh, this on uh, Bonk review is something that the federal circuit is more likely to do when different panels of uh, federal circuit judges have different interpretations. Uh, so there are sometimes what, what we call intra-circuit conflicts where one set of judges thinks this and one set of judges think that en banc review to sort of uh, get them all to sort of agree to one interpretation is the most frequent kind of uh, way to do this. Um, I think strategically, if um, Google's lawyers think that there's a reasonable chance of getting a split, um, and very often the federal circuit judges do split, um, but if you get a split decision by the federal circuit, I think that increases the chances that the Supreme Court uh, would take the case. Um, and I think that there will be a lot of interest among amici, I think, on both sides, yeah. uh, on the fair use issue, on the copyrightability issue, and on the question of sort of what kind of review is appropriate um, for judges to do and how much deference to give to, uh, to jury findings. So it seems to me that there are at least three types of issues uh, that um, – that could be of interest to the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know that they'll take 
cert on all of them, but they might take cert on one or more of them. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, there, there's been a lot of people talking about, and, and I am among them sort of, you know, how damaging this, this ruling potentially could be to to the software industry. Um, but I'm not sure that, like, you know, everyone reading about this or, or listening to this, you know, knows, like, what that means effectively. So do you, do you have a, a good way of summarizing why uh, software developers and, and companies that develop software might be worried about this particular ruling? Well, the decision to say that uh, interfaces are copyright protectable and the, to the extent that you make commercial use of them, uh, that that's not likely to be fair is very, very worrisome. Um, if there's a licensing market for the API and anybody with an API would want to now assert they have right. um, a licensing market for it. Um, so I think it, it puts in place some incentives, um, first of all, uh, to uh, develop these licensing markets that they're not already in existence, but also to... Um, uh, to threaten anyone who reverse engineers now uh, to uh, get access to an API, um, put them at more risk. Um, and partly that risk is that um, the essentially Ninth Circuit law, which I think is favorable to the reuse of APIs and favorable to uh, reverse engineering, can be overturned by uh, the simple act of putting a patent claim uh, and a complaint which gets you to the federal circuit, which has a much more uh, restrictive view about what's unprotectable about software and a much broader view about what scope of protection uh, is available. And um, I think, you know, people can say, well, you know, they said a fair use might still be possible. And I think <laughs> in cases where it's necessary to use an API in order to achieve compatibility, that would be um, your best argument um, because at the part of the opinion where they say, we're not saying that's never fair use in uh, software, uh, but uh, they cite to Sony, um, the Connectix, and, the, and to Sega Accolade. So those are compatibility cases. So um, before I kind of jump off the bridge and say, you know, this is devastating to the entire industry, um, we'll have to see whether or not compatibility, true compatibility, would be um, uh, uh, accepted. Uh, it is upsetting that the investment that the 9 million or so Java programmers have made in learning uh, the declarations that, uh, that, uh, that Google used uh, was given uh, no aid at all. Uh, the court basically said, hey, nobody gets the right to... Uh, uh, to free ride on popular stuff. It's like, no, this isn't popular. This is like functional. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, again, uh, the investment that the developing community has made in, uh, in learning the Java API um, is something that the Federal Circuit gives no weight positive to Google um, on. And I think that was something that both... Judge Alsop and the jury uh, thought that there there was a, a an important interest at stake. Um, why should you have to learn a different dialect of of Java in order to write for the Android platform? Right, right. Okay. Well, um, 
Thank you very much for, for taking the time and, and running through this. I think, um, you know, you as you mentioned, you've been dealing with this <laughs> issue for decades, uh, and, and I think you sort of understand it, you know, better than, than almost anyone. Um, un unfortunately, you understand it better than the federal circuit. <laughs> um, I, I wish they, they had, a, had a better sense of it. Um, but but uh, thank you again for, for taking the time, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Okay, bye. Bye.